Welcome to a new episode of Front End Happy Hour. In our last episode, we talked about user testing and how it is important to understand what makes a good user experience. To follow up from the last episode, we'll be talking about A-B testing. To help us talk more about A-B testing, we're joined by our special guest, Lisa Burgess. Lisa, can you give us a brief introduction of who you are, what you do, and what your favorite happy hour beverage is? Okay, I'm Lisa Burgess. I lead the programmatic science and analytics team at Netflix. And um, my favorite happy hour beverage, I'm drinking beer right now. It's summer, so I'm going to go with that. (laughs) Sounds good. And this is actually your second episode. You've joined us uh, a while ago, but welcome back. All right, let's give introductions to the panelists. Jim, you want to start it off? Jim Young, Senior Software Engineer at Netflix. Uh, Augustus Yoon, Front End Engineer at Evernote. And I'm Ryan Burgess. I'm a Software Engineering Manager at Netflix. In each episode of the Front End Happy Hour podcast, we like to choose a keyword that if it's mentioned at all in the episode, we will all take a drink. What did we decide today's keyword is? Control. Control. So if we say the word control, we will all take a drink. Let's start off by defining what A-B testing is. And it's not user testing, so that's a good start. But Great how start. would you define A-B testing? Yeah, we, kind of, we kind of defined it in the last episode re- really briefly, but oh, oh God, I guess yeah, I started you're, you're it. Speaking you're speaking now, I, started have, it. now you. I have to finish. It's essentially when you want to like test something very specific on a page. So uh, you want to test a small thing. So usually like all A-B tests have control. Actually, you know... Wait, I'm sorry. Cheers. 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 Yeah, I believe you you went into it a little. There's like a distinction between qualitative and quantitative, and A-B testing is a form of quantitative testing where you can actually like test something very specific and measure it. So Yeah, I think the most important thing about A-B testing is that the control and treatment group are randomized. Cheers. Including one of those episodes. It is. So it's randomized between the different variations. Exactly. And... I mean, I'm going to have to say the keyword, but what is control? Cheers. <laughs> We're going to have fun tonight. Control is the the default experience. So, so what, what you have in production, what have what's running, and then that's what you're, you already have an experience that you're wanting to test. Yeah. Think of it as um, a known value. It is, yeah. And and so sometimes it's called the counterfactual. It's like what should have happened. Because oftentimes if you roll out a, a new change and you think, oh, I don't have to A-B test this. I'm just going to see if my signups go up. But in reality, you don't actually know if your signups were going to go up anyway. And so you have your control group as your counterfactual to what should have happened if you hadn't rolled out that change and you're comparing it against each other. And cheers. And cheers. Yes. (laughs) Should have picked significance. Might have been a better call, but now we also have another word that we can use instead. That's good too. (laughs) Thank goodness Lisa's here. Yeah. uh, Because we'd be like, what's what's this? What's another word? (laughs) Oh, God. Another thing that I always think of is typically it refers to an A and B that you're testing, but there's also a form of, or I still consider it a form of A-B testing when it's multi-variation, which could be meaning that you have an A, B, C, D, et cetera, that you're, you're testing. So I think that's important to, like, I consider them the same. I know some people will refer to an A-B test as only A and B, but then there's also the multivariance testing as well. I think we should note that when you're A-B testing or A-B-C, it doesn't matter. Only one thing can change. Otherwise, you're not doing an A-B test anymore. You're just doing a separate type of test. You can't have two separate landing pages or something like that. Otherwise, 
like you're testing different things. You're trying to well, test you a specific could, event. Right? But you, you could, but you don't. You don't know, like, if so, if A is completely different than B, B might perform better, but you may not what, know what variations perform better. So you might have to isolate those after. So you could say, is A better than B? Well, B was better, so B is better. But at that point, you may not know all the variations. You wouldn't know what exactly, exactly is better about yeah. it. Yeah. So it's better to, to really isolate the variables at that point. I think that's what you're probably getting at. Yeah, yeah exactly. Or align sense. with people up front what they want to learn about the test. Because sometimes people will want to learn a specific thing. Does this copy resonate better with this user group versus that user group? But then they're changing five different things. And so you see that it's different, but you actually don't know if that was because of the copy. Sometimes people don't care about that. They're like, we designed this whole new user flow. We want to roll it out. We want to see if it is on par with our existing user flow. And we don't care about each individual element. In which case, that's that's fine, but it, it is about what people want to learn from it and what they want to say after the test, too, because sometimes that is different. So going into it with a strong hypothesis could really help as well. That helps. Yes. Yeah, that's always a good one to outline. I'm, I hate when people are like, oh, we're just going to test and see which one's better. But it's like, yeah, but what do you hypothesize to happen? It's like any test... I mean, we learned this in like science class in high school. It's like, <laughs> you need a hypothesis. Like you can't just go into an experiment and hope like something will happen. You need to really think about that up front. And you, we were like, we're probably not hitting it hard enough. You need a hypothesis. Otherwise, you're like, you, you introduce bias. If you don't have like upfront what you're testing, what you hope to get out of it. And like, what's your, what do you think the results will be? Otherwise, you're just like, well, this could you can like skew the results any way you want. Like uh, Lisa, as a statistician, like you could you know that like you can zoom in on any graph and like tell any story you want. So you have to tell the right story like ahead of time. Yeah, that happens often, and often times going into it and saying what you want to see is is hard to do, but it's very important. And I've seen before people say, you know, they start seeing the results of the test and they go, oh, well, even if this one's slightly worse, we'll still roll it out because there's operational wins on doing that and that's fine right you can you can still do that but you should have aligned on that before you saw like the results front. right yeah, you should have said true. we are we're willing to accept a five percent hit on this test but that's not usually what happens what happens is you start to see that the thing that you want it to win is starting to lose and then you're like eh, well maybe if it's only slightly worse or it's flat right it does no harm then we'll roll it out. And that's where you can get in a lot of trouble. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I love how you called out, like, you know, I, I feel like it's very easy for people to just chase metrics. And then also, like, maybe they really want signups to, like, do well. And maybe their test does do better in signups, but then some other metrics, like, take a hit mm -hmm. for that. And that could be really bad. <laughs> that's a good point. I, I have been guilty of that. Uh, I think Ryan's called me on it before. It's, we call it chasing hunting green. Yeah, uh, because in our A/B testing platform, uh, Ignite or whatever it's called now, uh, like tests are either red or green or neither. And I'm like, well, what about people in England on Samsung Galaxy? This test is doing great; it's green. But like, if you dig deep enough, you'll always find a win somewhere, right? Generally, and you can't do that. That's why you need like a solid hypothesis that yes. like. Unless that was your hypothesis going in, true, you're like, true. all I care about is it's people in England list. on the Galaxy. Yeah. Yeah. The Galaxy. There you go. <laughs> Hey, and then you, you actually, you hit the green metric there at that point, if that's your hypothesis. <laughs> but call that up front. Yes. Yeah. So what are benefits to doing A-B testing? Like why, you know, at uh, Evernote and at Netflix, we do A-B testing. Why do we do them? Like what are some benefits for testing features that we're creating? It's objective, 
right? So it removes this, what people will call like the hippo, right? Highest paid person's opinion. And so oftentimes people have beliefs of what should be right. And instead of doing that, you just listen to the data and you do what actually is right. And so I see that as the main benefit of doing it. And Lots of times when you roll out tests, like you can be wrong, right? And and so you see that with data and you know what direction to move in. So that's a big benefit. I always joke that we hire really talented engineers, designers, product managers, data scientists. We're all working really hard to make the best user experience. But oftentimes we're wrong. We're, we don't get it right all the time. And that's where that like A-B test will really, really definitively tell us, is this a better user experience? And even between two companies, like if Evernote was to do something, say in their sign up, that, that may work for Evernote, but it may not work for Netflix. And so we may have to do that test or we might have to both test very similar uh, tests and that our users might resonate with that and Evernote users may not, vice versa. So I think it's always important to really test and learn and make a data-driven decision. Yeah. I guess it's the, um, your gut instinct is like worthless. I mean, it's not worthless. <laughs> like it can inform like making product It can product inform decisions. like what you should try sure. or to try and test and see and really see, is that the right thing? Yeah. So I don't think it's a bad thing to have gut instinct. No, no, no. But like if you're, if you're uh, the head of some Fortune 100 company or like, well, my gut really says this is a strong market to do, but you don't test any of it. Like that's that's like not worth anything. Yeah. Like you you need to have qualitative data to, or quantitative data to figure out if you're right or not. Qualitative might help inform your A/B yes. test as mm -hmm. well, so you can get some early reads to say, yeah, I think we've got something here to test. So because we did talk about that when we were saying about user testing, is that it can actually help inform what you may A/B test in the long run. So that's good too. I think like to me. There's a ton of benefits in A-B testing. One of the main reasons I went to Netflix is because they do so much A-B testing. And that to me is so powerful as an engineer to be able to continue iterating on a user experience and really understand like what resonates with users. But there can be disadvantages. And I'd be, I'd, I'm interested to know your opinions or thoughts on like what some disadvantages to A-B testing can be. You can get stuck in analysis paralysis. So <laughs> if the... Results come up flat, let's say, and you the data is not going to then make the decision for you and you've ingrained a culture where you're always using the data to make the decision, then what do you do? Do you retest? Do you roll out what you think is the best? You're, you're still going to be stuck in that place where you have to make a decision based on, on nothing. Uh, so, so that's the one part of it. And the other part of it, too, is that it is expensive, right? So I work on the marketing side and every time that you're doing a test, um, you're you're paying to do that test. And in order to get enough sample size, in order to get a read on something, that costs a lot of money, especially if you're doing half of it where it's a worse variation, right? And you kind of see that, but you're still going to spend that money on that. So it, it can be expensive. It's worth it, but costly. I think even your, to your point is actual dollars that are being spent on yeah, marketing like real side. Money. Yeah. But ours is actually on the engineering front too, is that's not for free. That's a lot of time and effort going into that, building multiple variations of a feature to understand what best works with the users. So that's that's not cheap. And then also time, you're also having to run that for a while in order to see what works, then clean up the code, remove all the variations that may not have worked. And maybe if there was a clear winner, then actually having to make sure that that, that can scale long term. So there's a lot of back and forth. So it's expensive in time as well. So it's not for something that you just get for free. 
I think that that's a good point is it's expensive. We should probably clarify some nomenclature for newer people. So what does flat mean? Oh, so flat means that there is no difference between your test and control. So no statistical difference. Yes. Cheers. Cheers. And that means that from a statistical standpoint, A and B are essentially the same. So there is no no notable difference between them. There's a 95% chance that they're actually the same. So like we asked you, because we're talking about the disadvantages of A-B testing, to get to uh, statistical significance, you need a certain amount of tests to be run. You definitely, when you're running an A-B experiment, um, depending on how different you think A and B are going to be from one another, helps to inform you how much sample size you're going to need in order to detect that effect. If you're looking for something really small, like if you're making an incredibly small change between something and changing the color of a button falls into that category because it is it is small and it's going to be a small effect, you need massive sample sizes in order to detect if there's actually a difference between them. And if you don't have enough sample size, what can happen is that there could be a real difference between A and B, but your test wasn't big enough to detect it, so you'll get fake flat results is what I call it. So it you can actually design a test, like let's say you, you were aiming for getting flat results, right? If flat meant that you could roll out this new thing, you could actually construct a test that would almost ensure you would get flat results by having not enough people in the studies, right? So it is one of those ways that people can game the system, if you will, um, on it. And not that people usually do that intentionally, it's usually unintentionally, but it's something that you have to think of and why testing can be really expensive too, because it's depending on the effect that you're looking for, you can use massive sample sizes that take weeks or, you know, however long to run, depending on how many people are coming to your website or how many marketing dollars you're willing to spend. That's interesting. I hadn't really thought of that, but that's actually yeah, a very valid point. It's so I, I guess bring it back to the world because like this is the world we live in a lot of times. Probably not so much math. Lisa's really, really <laughs> smart. Um, but l- let's add, add a, a coin and I'm flipping it. How do I know when I'm like, uh, like I know this coin is rigged. Like I have a few coins. One of them is rigged to beat heads most of the time. What if I flip and it's like heads 10 times in a row? At what point do I know, like, this is the rig coin or I need to keep flipping? Because, like, at any point in the timeline, you can look and, like, get the results that you want. Yeah, so people will call that peaking, like, early peaking at results. Um, <laughs> We're guilty for this, too. Right, so I, I, was I mean, this. I do it, too, right? I do it, too. But preferably, you want to wait until you have enough sample size. So, like, what you're what you're talking about is, like, there's this concept of power and having enough power in your test to detect the fact that you're looking for. Um, and you have to wait for your test to hit that, right? Or else the results that you see may not be real. They may not be real at all. Um, and so I don't need want to get like too into the weeds at all. But if you're working with a scientist who's helped you construct your test and they say you need a million people per cell before you can get a read, you probably need a million people per cell before looking at it. Because if you look at it early and it looks green or almost on the verge of green, it can change. It may not be. It might not stay that way. Um, it might. Which we've seen many <laughs> times. Seen like, yes, we, yes. Can, we can look at the data you know, in a little bit of a dashboard. And yes, I always rely on data scientists on our teams to like help inform. I'm like, is it too early to look? They're like, yeah, it's too early to look. I'm like, okay, but it's looking positive. And they're like, yeah, yeah, but it's still too early. It's it's always exciting to watch that happen because 
that it may change over time, but it's still, it's very, we're guilty of looking at it. That's, that's the problem. Do you action on it? No. Like when because, you look at it, you wait. No, yeah, you still wait. And, but it's, I think it's still exciting to see like what's happening over time and, and monitoring that. Like we'll often go look at a feature and see what's happening, but you still know that in the back of your mind, it's way too early and you can't make a call, but you might say, Hey, it's looking positive and, and hoping that. But at the end of the day, we rely on data scientists to really tell us when the right time it is to call it. I guess if you place bets on variance, you'd be like, Oh, yeah, I mean, it, it's exciting because like, shouldn't. I like betting on things. <laughs> don't, don't gamble. It's, it's, no, but it's good to bet on them because like oftentimes I'll like have, Ooh. there's been times we've done user experiences where I can tell you or I would have confidently said this is going to be a great user experience and it fails. Oh, yeah. Like it's a completely yeah. wrong or the vice versa. I've had it where I'm like this, there's no way this is a better user experience. And I'm so wrong. And, and it's kind of, it's awesome to kind of have that hypothesis even going in or having your own opinion on it. It's nice to see what you're right and wrong on. So it's really taught me a lot of things. <laughs> Actually, I had a quick question because, yeah, so we talked about how your A and B or whatever variants you have need to be distinct enough. But then at the same time, if your variants are too distinct, then you might sacrifice in understanding what is what is actually causing to do better. So what's like a good middle ground? I guess like what's a good example test you've seen maybe like in your career? of like a good A and B that were very distinct enough that, I don't know, like I, I guess the button color changing, that makes a lot of sense. Like that's pretty subtle. Mm -hmm. And so it would take a lot of like people to hit significance. Yeah, yeah like so e even with, even though messaging seems subtle, it actually can have very different uh, We've seen huge effects right. just by uncertain messaging. So I think that it depends on your own company's data as well, like what your own baselines look like. And mm -hmm. um, if you've never really done any testing, you actually don't know what the variance is going to look like. So your first couple of tests, you may not know what is small and what is big, right? But in, you know, like historically, what we've seen is that even if you change a CTA, like a call to action mm -hmm. on the button, yep. that can have a dramatic effect. But changing the color alone you know, Rarely. doesn't doesn't really do. Much. Oh, I mean, I guess it can. Like, it can. I was going to say there can. there definitely could be times where that could make a difference. I mean, you could go really extreme and call, like a large call to action. It could get larger and brighter, and that could actually do it. <laughs> Might not be the best thing. Um, like the whole page, the CTA, yeah. just. You got to click here. Yeah. <laughs> it's like there's nothing else bye, to do. Like, and that could be too is like sometimes you might move metrics in. I think this is an important thing to call out too. It's not a disadvantage, but I think it's something to be aware of is that sometimes you may move metrics one way. Like if it was thinking of like someone signing up for your experience, you could also impact someone trying to log in and that they get confused and end yes. up signing up for a new account. And so you've got more signups when that's not really the goal to like hurt your current user experience to actually wanting to log in, but you've maybe just made a sign up button and no login. And so they're like, I want to get into the product. And <laughs> so yes. it's like, wow, look at the signups. We've got so many more signups. It's like, yeah, because you don't have a login option. You know, that's a pretty extreme, but those things can happen as well. Another area that I, I wanted to call out is on the design side of things. I think oftentimes design, I sometimes feel for designers because they want something to look better in the product. And that doesn't always work if you do it from a data-driven perspective is, yeah, it may look better visually, 
but it may not necessarily work with your users. And so that can be very discouraging. I don't think it's a, it's not a reason not to A-B test, but it's like, it can be discouraging when you're trying like this new design that looks really great, but doesn't perform well. And to me, you should still be data-driven, but it can be discouraging. So like bring this back to, I think we've talked a lot of theory and we're all kind of used to that a little bit, but bring it back to people who aren't as familiar with A-B testing. A-B testing is really powerful in that, but we also learned that you can be wrong and you can end up like productizing the wrong thing and just be wrong and be like, why are our signups down or why aren't people buying our product anymore? It's because you were wrong like months ago and you don't realize it. So it's, it's a, it's a dangerous tool sometimes if you don't know what you're doing. I think that's a very valid point too, is like, even to like what Lisa said, you can read the data wrong or get like a false uh, read and then that could totally throw things. What do you mean by productizing too, Jim? Productizing would be taking the winning cell and the cells are A, B, C, D, whatever you're testing, and then making that the default experience for everybody that comes to your site or app or whatever you're testing. Awesome. Is there a time, like we talked about disadvantages, so there's like some things there, but is there a time when you shouldn't be A, B testing? I, I was going to say like, remember at SACJS, we, we had this talk with Brian and Brian was talking about like, um, you know, there, there are lots of things that could change, you know, there's seasonal things. I feel like if you're a company that doesn't have like historical data, like to even like consider like past experiences, that might be a time that it's too early to be testing. Like you, you're like so new that you don't have anything to kind of base um, your like tests on. Um, that might be completely wrong. I don't know. I would no, want no, to I defer. Think, I think that's a valid that's point. That's totally yeah. valid, right? Like if you're going to be testing something around the Super Bowl. <laughs> um, you know, things are going to behave differently than if you're testing, you know, it depends on your business, but that seasonality is a good thing to think of when you're running an A-B test. Yeah, we even think about is for seasonality is like the day of the week too, right? So even if you had, depending on a section of an application that gets used, like widely used, you might have enough traffic to like actually get a decent read on it in like two days. But that could be like a weekend and that's probably not that's not really hitting your seasonality. You want to at least run it across all days of the week to really get a better understanding. Mm -hmm. But then also, yeah, if you have Super Bowl on the Sunday and that like, you know, increases traffic or something like that, that could actually not really read right. So you might actually want another set like of days yeah. uh, of the week as well. I think if you're looking for something small, if you think the effect between A and B is going to be small and that you cannot get enough sample size, the read from your test is going to be useless. It's not going to be trustworthy. So in that event, it's better that you just go with your gut on what you think is better than getting bad data that's going to shake your gut, right? So if you think that A is better because this color is better and you can't actually get enough sample size to detect whether there is a difference, just roll out A. Because if you get test results that show that B is sort of leaning better, then you're going to second guess yourself. And it seems counterintuitive coming from someone who works in data science, but I'd much rather someone just roll something out, especially when it's like detecting something super small, that if you can't run a test that's going to show whether or not it's better, just don't do it. Just go with your gut it goes back to the expense part there yep. too of like time and effort that goes into it it's probably not worth it at that yep. point point. and not to mention um seasonality is a good point like if you're a business that makes most of their money around the holiday season and you have two radical two radical cells 
half those people are going to be getting a worse experience. And that may not be what you want. Because if you're doing, you know, 100 million in traffic a day, like 50 million of those people are going to get a terrible experience. Like you think of those like major like shopping days of the year of like around like the Christmas holidays or Black Friday. Friday. Those are huge in the US and like, like I've seen Walmart even talk about the traffic they, they get on like Black Friday. That could be, yeah, you don't really maybe want to run an A-B test on that. You want to have a fairly strong experience and not worry about it and ha- put your best foot forward rather than try and be like, let's test it. Because then, yeah, you're right. You're giving some customers a not optimal experience and know that. Probably not the best time. <laughs> what kind of tools do you need to run A-B tests? So we actually... um for when I was on marketing website with you know with Lisa and Brian here at Evernote, um, we we actually uh, Google Analytics at the time offered something. They have actually changed it. It's called Google Optimize now. But we oh. used to use this thing called Google Experiments, and you can actually like just I think uh, they have this library called the CX API, um, which actually does a lot of the heavy lifting for you. So it's just like a very simple API which uses like Google Auth cookies. And, you know, you can, like, define a test in the Google Analytics GUI. Um, You just log in. You create an experiment. um, URL, put the URLs to your variants. And then the Google Experiments library will, like, do all the heavy lifting of segmenting everyone out. And it actually, like, randomizing all that. And it it actually has, like, some pretty advanced features, like, like, um, I think it's called multi-armed bandit or something of the sort. Oh, yeah. And for those of you who aren't aware of what that is, that is basically Google will have this system where it will like you put in a metric that you've hooked into Google Analytics so you can define like certain metrics or dimensions that you like are wanting to focus on in like winning for the experiment. And if a variant, if a certain variant is doing well in that, it will like start auto segmenting people into the winning variant. Yeah, the um, the image that is always shown for the multi-arm bandit is an octopus at the casino. And it's just like all the arms are pulling the slot machines. <laughs> and so it's like, oh, if this slot machine is paying out more, like I'm just going to start pulling more on this one. Like that is the image that everyone knows for a multi-arm bandit. It's the same picture always. In awesome every way to pre- explain it. I've never seen it. every presentation I've ever seen has this like octopus. <laughs> I, know, I know what you're talking about. <laughs> Well, I think the one thing I actually always say, if you are wanting to start A-B testing, that the Google Analytics tooling for the... I didn't even know that they changed names on it. That's awesome. Yeah, very recently happened. Um, But I always say is like most sites and applications, unless they're doing something different, most sites and applications use Google Analytics already. So it's a tool that's already built in. One caveat there that I always... I have concerns with Optimizely is another tool. Mm -hmm. Uh, Google Analytics is it's done client side. And so there, there are some concerns there of, you know, redirects that are happening. Um, It's happening on the client and, and that can actually impact the user experience on the control. (laughs) Cheers. Cheers. Where your, your experience may not, there might not be a redirect happening to the people in the, the control variants cheers 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 it's happening on the other uh other variations and so that can actually change the like performance of things a little bit and so that to me is something to be aware of and and worry about as well but i think it's a good way to start like, there's there's also ways that you could try and do some of that on the server mm-hmm. versus on the client um but leveraging that api is very very useful i always think that's a great start for 
you know, doing that. At Netflix, we we have an internal team that builds amazing tooling for us. We have a team dedicated to that, which is awesome. Not every company can do that, though. Yeah. And so I think there are ways that companies can, you know, leverage Google Analytics, Optimizely. There's other tools that are out there. I think that's a great way to start because you're not going to necessarily go invest. Let's build our entire tooling system around it. <laughs> um I mean, you could even start with like just building it into like some components like in React components or whatever framework you're using. You could do that, but also need to probably figure out how you're measuring it. That's probably the most important thing, making sure that the data is actually being logged clearly. Probably not up to the engineers on that side. I would (laughs) definitely rely on data science at that point. Yeah, Lisa, what did you say earlier? If you're thinking about doing A-B testing... Don't get a data scientist first, you know. <laughs> or yeah, like uh, yeah. How do you measure an A/B test? Well, you don't. Your your analytics partner, your data science partner, um, does. That is the best advice I would say on on any of this. So even if you're going to use some of those tools, you know, have someone internally, or or even you know, like if you're using something like Optimizely, I believe they also have resources that you can you know uh, kind of partner with. Yeah, I think they have consultants. Like on the on the yeah, like on the science side, um, you know. So it's always good to kind of beef up on that and and really know what you're getting because doing it without really doing it is not going to get you very far. Well, it goes back to your point that you could actually be getting the wrong measurements right. and making, well, you're making informed decisions on data that's wrong. You're so making not, a decision yeah, you're on a, wrong data yeah, and yeah. it might feel good, but it's not going to actually drive your business. You'd be better to just randomly <laughs> try things at that point. <laughs> yeah, it actually can be more harmful. It than can good be, Because yes. the learnings you take away from that just carry out through for the rest of your experiments. How do A B like doing A B tests affect how you write code? <laughs> um, I mean, well, it could be that it could it could, it could be that, and, and yeah. yeah, and actually, like for us, like very early on, it really was that. I think we're still open to like trying to like explore different ideas for that. Um, I'm curious how Netflix does it. Um, I, I I also like I know for React, like there is like this idea of context, and there might be some cool solutions you can do with that. But yeah, I think React or even just a lot of the frameworks lend very nicely to A-B testing in the sense that the idea of creating components and that you can add and remove components really easily, I think that really lends well to A-B testing. Jem, do you want to talk more about how we do inclusion strategies and uh, oh, man, in our code? That's pretty detailed. Uh, high level, we have a packager called Codex. Uh, and Codex bundles all of the packages that you need for a particular user into one JavaScript bundle and sends it on down. That way we're not, I mean, we're constantly running like thousands of A-B tests all the time. So we're not sending all of that code for everybody to the client. They only get exactly what they need. Right, because if you and I are both in an A-B test, we're in the same A-B test, but you've got variation C and I've got variation A, I don't want your code and you don't want my code because then that will actually add more weight to each of the pages and that's not a good user experience and that can impact the test as well. Yeah, if you have a cell that is particularly heavy on the payload, it can definitely skew the test because you're like, oh, this, this cell's doing worse. But actually, you increase the payload size by 500 kilobytes, which is throwing off the time to render, which is throwing off your... Like stuff like that, you have to take into account. That's why A-B testing is not as... It's not as easy as uh, people said. Ryan has been on many rants to me about it. He's like, I heard this podcast. and They're talking about A-B testing, and they made it seem so easy. And it's like really, really hard stuff. And then Lisa 
can back it up with the math is like really hard too. But, you know, we said if you do it right, you can get some big wins. Mm -hmm. Uh, But from a code perspective, if you're, it makes you write more portable code and more isolated code because at any given time, you're going to have to rip that code back out. And um, it's hard as an engineer, like building things, like spending a lot of time on a a particular cell when you'd be like, oh, that, that cell lost, delete all that code. But that's just something you get used to, building things and deleting them. But it, it does make you write cleaner code, I think. I actually like the aspect of being able to throw away shit. I mean, it, it can be it can be like, I get your point, where it's like, that kind of sucks when you're like, oh, I, I did all that work and now I'm throwing it away. But I've also been on the reverse, where I know that there's like some bad feature that was built. And you talk to it and it's like, why do we still have this? Or like, why are we keeping this around? And... Like our customers don't like this feature, but I've definitely heard this from like higher ups and they're like, but we spent all this engineering effort on it. And to me, it's like, yeah, but if it's not good to just like throw it away because maintenance costs, we all know that like code debt is a big thing. And to me, if I can throw something out that's not valuable, I'm okay Mm -hmm. with that. I mean, deleting lines of code, Gem, it feels great. Yeah, but it hurts though. You know, you put that time in oh, your sweat. <laughs> that literally sweat on my keyboard. That 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 is a good call out though. Like A/B testing, you have to be okay with like throwing that away because it is for the test. You know, absolutely. The, yeah, yeah. I, I think also too. I mean, Jem probably is upset when I'm like, Jem, we got to throw that away. But at, at the same point, I, I think of it too is that's also ways that you can think about that in a smart way. Is like we talk about cutting some corners in the sense that we don't want to impact or hurt the user experience, but you may not write the cleanest, most thoughtful code if there's multiple variations. But when you find that winning one, that's when you take the time to really like re-architect the code and think about scale at that point is that we won't just ship it and say, ah, just ship it. We found a winner. It's like, we'll take the time to really be thoughtful about the clean code aspect at that point. And I think it speaks to like um, making sure that all teams actually buy into the concept of A-B testing, right? Mm Because as an engineer, you're writing all of this code and to just get some answer from some data science saying, oh, that's no good. And, you know, if you don't actually buy into the concept of what it has what it can do for the business and and things like that, you're not going to feel so great. You're not going to feel motivated at work. But at Netflix, we have ingrained this test and learn and test and learn and iterate culture and everybody buys into it. And so that is another important element. So technically, there's a lot of things to consider with A-B testing, but there's also a lot of organizational buy-in, stakeholder trust, I guess, um, that you need to be able to run these correctly and keep everyone you know, happy and and motivated at their jobs. Because it does mean throwing out things that people work really hard on. Yeah, you have that investment. You spend a lot of time on that. And even even at the end of the day, even if you find one variation that like wins or is a positive uh, read, that means that there's at least, you know, depending on how many variations you've had, that there's like A, B, C, D did not work, but E did. So you just have to throw a bunch of work away and only keep one thing. At the end of the day, you always know that some of this is throwaway and that can be disheartening. And well, it's it's expected. Uh, I think product managers are, there's no like hard rule, but you're expected to fail a certain amount of time because if you're not failing at A, B tests, like your hypothesis is dead wrong, then you're not pushing the bounds enough. And yeah. like you need to push the bounds to get those big wins. Mm-hmm. So like it's it's gonna happen. We're gonna have to throw away code. We're gonna have bad A/B tests. Just 
It's Fail- and failing's not bad. I think yeah. failing is actually a good thing because you learn something from it and it may inform the next test or, you know, inform a different route to go. I mean, if you continue to fail at the same thing, that's when it's a bad failure. It's like, <laughs> hey, this yes. isn't working. Let's try it again. You're like, no, like you're just continuing to do the same thing and hoping for different results. That's craziness. So that doesn't work. And failing is much better than learning the wrong thing. Yes. Mm, yes. That's I a like very that. learning, that's learning so the wrong good. thing is very harmful. Yes. Yeah, I like that a lot. That's good. Kind of leads into some like other good questions. We we're talking about our companies are doing A B testing. What about people who want to start A B testing within their companies? I know like even Lisa, you're saying that like there's a culture around it at Netflix of us iterating and testing. There's buy in from everyone. How does someone start to build that within their companies what advice would you give someone that wants to start a b testing in their company i think you start at it from you know it depends on on what role you play right so if you're an engineer um, thinking about what solution might you present to someone that would make it possible to do a b testing right and say you know, I'm interested in this and, and here's here's how I would go about it and here's how we could do it that is not too taxing on me, not too taxing on the organization. If you're in a different role other than that, you know, you might come at it from a hypothesis perspective. Like, wouldn't it be great if we knew this versus that? Um, so I think it really depends. Like your path of influence or how you might go about it is going to be completely different based on where you are, like what your role is in the organization and what your approach would be to it. So I would leave that up to the individual, really, because um, there's a number of ways to, to go about it. Sometimes it's just do it, right? Like yeah. so, mm-hmm. Sometimes your company yeah. is small enough that you've got Google Analytics and you can just 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 do it and then show the results, right? So, and that's kind of where I lean on like being an engineer is like there probably is ways that you can start to play around with that. But yes. if you already have the tooling in place, it's like, all right, how like look into the APIs, see how you can leverage it see you know showing one variation versus the other and and start to kind of run some experiments maybe work closely with a designer or you know and go back to trying to pull someone within with some statistical knowledge and getting a data scientist involved is very important but there's ways that you can do it in a pretty lo-fi way to at least try it out i want to say that you know very envious of netflix like codex and like pack it's like super optimal and when you're at netflix's scale you definitely have to care about that but just, you know, letting people know, you know, there's ways to do A-B testing without like such an advanced way. Like honestly, like starting off with Google experiments or or like anything of the sort, like you can definitely get it going. Like, yeah, d- like once you get to Netflix scale, maybe you can care about. But that's those, the thing, like, too, is like right? we had to learn our way into it. Yeah, too. It's not exactly. like just one day it appeared. And it's like, yes, we have a team dedicated to building building this infrastructure and tooling, yep. which makes our lives easier to enable to run more A-B tests. But even then, it's like that team is still innovating and building new tooling and making it easier and better for us as well. Yep. Great. Before we end the episode, we like to share picks of things that we found interesting and like to share with our listeners. Let's go around the table and share our picks for today's episode. Jem, what do you have? Oh, man. Oh, okay. Um... Don't judge me. No one judge me in this room. I'm already judging. Don't even look at me. I'm prejudging. Prejudging. My first pick is a music album. It is the first album of 2018 that I've listened to repeatedly all the way through. And I don't normally do that. I usually just pick songs. Do you sing? Do you sing along? Sometimes. Only in the shower when I'm feeling alone. No. uh, (laughs) 
it's a solid album. I've been listening to it at the gym a lot uh, on my way to work. Uh, it is called Sire, and it's the album by Jaden Smith. You have to listen to every track like back to back, and it just makes sense. It I, like I'm impressed. Like I didn't want to like it, but I do. It's just I'm gonna try it. I will. I'll. I'll I'm gonna try it. Give it a shot. Yeah, it's 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 good. I don't I don't recommend music that often, but no, you don't. Good. That's true. So we should probably give it a listen. We'll give it a try. Yeah. yeah. They're not going to be able to try. I don't. <laughs> uh, my second pick is a movie I saw last weekend. It is on Netflix, not an original, just uh, on Netflix. It's called American Hero. It's about a guy who has superpowers. He can move things with his mind. He can like fall from big heights and not get in. It's unclear like the extent of his powers, but he's a total slacker and doesn't do anything with them. Like he uses it to like grab beer or something like that. But it, it's just like a well-shot movie. It's not like action-oriented. It's not uh, like crazy explosion or anything like that. It's just one of these quiet movies that like he has superpowers and like the neighborhood around him. It's like, oh, yeah, he has superpowers. Everybody knows that. It's worth watching if you're in this type of movie. I have like a very specific genre of movies that I type that I like, and this is one of them. So I recommend That's it. That's interesting. Like an anti-hero, but yeah. isn't really a villain. Instead, is like he goes against the stereotype because he's a slacker. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, it kind of reminds me of Jessica Jones in a way. Like, yeah, she just kind of does her own thing, but, she, you know, she's doing some good, but also just kind of does whatever she wants. Yeah, I think I've picked um, a movie called Monsters, um, which is also not about superpowers. It's about, like, aliens invading Earth, but they've been in Mexico, and these people are trying to get up through the United States. Anyways, I picked it before, but it's another one of these, like, not a whole lot of dialogue, just mm-hmm. a lot of, like, good cinematography and music. But like a solid plot line, but it's not Hollywood, um, you know, Michael Bay style explosions, thing like that. It's just like... You're, you're sold me by saying it's not that. So it's that's not a good that. thing. No. And that's the type of movie I like. Just yeah. like more of a quiet, quiet movie with interesting uh, premise. Michael Bay ruins everything. He ruins everything. <laughs> but they keep giving him money. Yeah. We gotta stop just that. Just keep yeah. doing it. Yeah. What are they on Transformers like 10 or something? I mean, he's like ruining my childhood. Like Transformers. What else has he made that he just... It's terrible. Ooh, yeah, the Island. All bad movies. True. But... To be fair, we all see, or Ryan and I at least see Fast and Furious, which are terrible movies. So, <laughs> yeah, take what we say. That's, the that's true. That's true. We'll be there for the next one. Lisa, what do you have for picks? So I have just one. So I recently watched Ali Wong's second comedy on Netflix called Hard Knock Wife. I thought it was so funny. I actually almost threw up. I was laughing so hard. Um <laughs> And I think it was just more specific to my own experience because I had a baby a year ago and, you know, she talks a lot about being a new mom and it's, it's, it's really funny. Like, I thought it was so good. She also has another one, Baby Cobra, which is also really funny, but I really like the second one more. I need to watch those. I think both of you have recommended those. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You like, got to give it a try. Ali Wong is, is so funny. She is yeah. really funny. Augustus actually saw her live, too. Which yeah. Is pretty cool. so I did jealous. see that one. Yeah. It was good. It was great. Yeah, it was the one. Fantastic. That- I've had, I have so much appreciation for mothers. Oh, yeah. Like, maternity <laughs> needs to be two years, like, minimum. <laughs> Well, yeah, most people don't even get the year or anything like that. So, yeah, it's craziness. But she does touch on that in in that comedy special, which is great. Mm -hmm. Augustus, what do you have? Yeah, so actually my picks segue pretty well. I was talking to Lisa about this. Um, Pudding um, Cool is like uh, kind of a site. Actually, Shirley has contributed to it. They do a lot of data visualizations. And they have a really um, cool one called uh, the 
the structure of stand-up comedy, and they feature Ali Wong's first Netflix um, special, and they just kind of go through and like they really study her piece and why her stand-up is like brilliant. I highly recommend checking like a lot of their data visualizations, but this one especially, like it's really cool. They even show like how her like they measure the amount of decibels like of laughter like in magnitude and how like it led up to that point and like how those topics like kind of like concluded in such a way that people would like laugh that hard almost at that, throw up at, at that climax the laughter climax <laughs> so like throw up yes yeah cool that's so that's my awesome. first pick. very cool and then my second pick um is just this thing um that this person named t waldwin made um he made a visualization of all the buildings in manhattan mm. it's like really cool um and yeah, I think it's just definitely worth checking out. Like, you don't get to see, like, like data visualization at this scale very often, and it's just cool to see this guy, like, make it free for someone to see. And it's all open source, so you can, like, check it out. Very cool. cool. Awesome. Uh, I have two picks. First one is a Netflix original show that actually Lisa and I binged really hard. We went through that one really quick, which was Safe. It's an interesting story about... It's actually the main character from Dexter. He's the main character in this as well. And he he's missing his daughter and there's all these like crazy things that are happening. And I don't want to give too much away in the story, but it, it is very, very good. I really enjoyed it. Okay. Answer me this because I saw the trailer. Is he actually British or is he like doing a British accent? I think he's doing a British accent. Wow. But I, I don't, like, I'm, look I'm not a hundred percent sure to be honest. So it's probably for us yeah, to look up. Unclear. Yeah. I, I mean, in Dexter, out. he didn't have a British either. accent. So. No, he's definitely American. Yeah. Yes. But I have no idea. But you know, like uh, the show House with Hugh Laurie. Yeah, yeah. I did not know he was British. Yeah, I didn't and know like he was you British. You never would have like known that. Yeah, that's yeah. right. And so that could be the case, but I really don't know. And I'm sure someone can tell us. We or could Google could look, could this, look up, this up. But it's much but it's, like, it's Yeah, it's funner yeah. not knowing. Then my second pick is something that I've been using. I think it's I've had it on my phone for a few weeks. It, you you kind of just put it in the background and don't really think about it. But it's an app called Haya. And what it does is it helps prevent spam calls. And I have to say, I used to get spammed a lot. Like I'd be picking up calls all the time where it's like, yeah, like this hotel, this vacation, who knows what I was winning. It was crazy all the time. But I got to the point where I wouldn't even answer my damn phone. So that's kind of a problem. And I would just ignore calls. So this is an app that actually tries to prevent spam. And I, I have to say, I can't remember the last call I've had. And that's pretty impressive. I'm sure it that's doesn't awesome. catch them all, but it helps prevent them. It is for iOS and Android. Definitely worth checking out. I think it's a freemium product, so you can try it out for free. And I'm sure you have to pay for added features, but definitely something worth checking out. So I downloaded it briefly, but I was unclear on how they make money. And they have like a really big team. You don't pay for anything. Mm. So like, you know, in products like that where it's a, you know, I'm looking at their page, like <laughs> 50 Facebook, people. What? Yeah, I, Ooh, I was just data. unclear on are what... Are selling your data? I mean, I'm, they obviously are. I, you know what? I'm okay with that, you know? That's to not, fair. To that's not fair get enough. all my... Ooh, Another episode next time on yeah. Friday Night <laughs> On data privacy. <laughs> and I, all your phone numbers are in my phone, so I've just ah, sold all you your sold data. my data yeah. too. But I don't get uh, spam calls in. <laughs> That's true. That. <laughs> Silver lining. Yeah. I still get those political text messages. Oh, those are annoying too. I get like dozens of I haven't them. had those in a long time. Maybe you need higher. We're not registered. It doesn't work for Hey, maybe that's how they're making money. When they're like 
And then you get the you won. They'll be like, hey, is that <laughs> they're, <up?"> they're taking. <laughs> <laughs> they're actually getting the free uh. trips. <laughs> All right, before we end the episode, I want to thank our special guest, Lisa, for joining us. It was a pleasure having you join us. Where can people get in touch with you? So people can get in touch with me on Twitter, although I don't use it all that often, (laughs) but you definitely can reach out to me there. Um, It's underscore Lisa Burgess is my handle. Anywhere else they can get in touch with you? That's it. All right. (laughs) LinkedIn. You can always reach out to me on LinkedIn. I mean, you can find me there. What about the rest of the panelists? Jem, where can people get in touch with you? Uh, I'm on Twitter, at Jem Young. And they could probably find your phone number on the internet probably now because of that? Probably sold yeah. my data. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> just call Ryan. Yeah. Just call Ryan and, and it'll forward it to Jem. Augustus? Uh, yeah, my Twitter, at uh, Augberto, A-U-G-B-U-R-T-O. Someone should tweet me if that's like a bad hand. I should maybe I should. should get a new you don't want to change it now though. It's too late. It's too, too late. late. It's I have too so late. many links to it. Yeah, oh, there's geez. links to it. You've announced it on a bunch of episodes. Yeah. It's too late. It's okay. Don't worry. Okay. Yeah. All right. <laughs> and I'm on Twitter at Burgess D Ryan. Thank you all for listening to today's episode. Make sure to subscribe to Front End Happy Hour Podcast on whatever you like to listen to podcasts on, and follow us on Twitter at Front End HH. If it's not a good handle, we're not changing it. So it's too <laughs> there bad. There you go. Yeah. Any last words? Control. Augustus needs control. to pee. <laughs> control. Control. Control your bladder. I can't control, control myself. Control your bladder. <laughs> <laughs>